Happy Sunday. We doing all right? Awesome. Well, hey, uh, my name is Cody Wason, and I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Antioch, and just want to say welcome, and it's good to worship together, just to focus on Jesus. I don't know where you're coming into the, tonight uh, with, or, or coming from, or where, you're, where you are in your journey, but man, my hope tonight is that we would walk away a little more in love with Jesus, a little more challenged to to live the mission of the gospel in our everyday life. So uh, we have been in a series for quite a while now um, looking at the early church. And it was called, it is called, Things Just Got Messy. We've been walking through the beginning of Acts, looking at what was the mission and the values and the DNA of the first believers uh, after Easter. So actually this series started right after Easter. So what happened next? After Jesus died on the cross, after he rose again, those first believers, we called them the early church. And, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. It's been challenging to me as I've walked through uh, these, these first couple books of Acts, just looking at how the mission of Jesus and the gospel was so real and so worth it to the early church. And so tonight, we're actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to kind of tie a bow on the story that we've been telling. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up this series tonight. Um, uh, with Acts chapter 11. So there's, there's about 18 more books of Acts. I encourage you to keep reading. Uh, but for this, we just felt like the first 11 books was the story that needed to be told uh, in this time and in this season. So before I jump into Acts 11, what I want to do is make sure that as I, as I kind of draw this story to a close, that we remember the point of the story. And we go back to the beginning and understand and see how we got from Acts 1 to Acts 11. So I want to I just go back to kind of the mission statement for the book of Acts that kind of set the stage for where we'd be going, and that is Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is Jesus charging his disciples with the mission of the kingdom. And he says that the Holy Spirit's going to fall, and you're going to take this message, this gospel, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. And I think you'll see that by the time Acts 11 rolls around, as we unpack, uh, as we unpack Acts 11, we have reached the uttermost parts of the earth. That part of the story is upon us. So, uh, and I want to recap where we were last week. Uh, last week, we, uh, we walked through Acts 10, and we, we walked through God stepping in and shaking up His church to get people to understand that the gospel is for everybody. So if you remember, there was this vision that Peter has, and it's of all these unclean animals that, going back to Levitical law in the Old Testament, that Jews weren't supposed to touch or eat, and, and he used, God uses this vision to send Peter on a journey, and he ends up in the home of Cornelius, a, a Roman soldier, a Gentile. Peter's not supposed to be there by a Jewish cultural code. He was breaking everything he should ever or could ever break as a Jewish person. And uh, there we set the scene at the end of, of Acts chapter 10. Peter is in this house with Cornelius and all of Cornelius' family and friends, and Peter doesn't know what else to do, so he shares the gospel. And as he's sharing the gospel, the craziest thing happens. The Holy Spirit falls 
on this group of Gentiles that Peter honestly in his heart of hearts probably never thought would experience the Holy Spirit because they weren't Jews. And he watches this crazy thing happen and his mind is blown. And then at the end, you can kind of see like the moment is kind of over. Everyone's kind of like, what, what just happened? And Cornelius uh, does a really good thing. The very last sentence of Acts chapter 10 says that they asked Peter to remain with them for several days. So this crazy thing happens. God shows up and moves amongst these Gentiles, and they're like, hey, you've got to stay, and you've got to tell us what in the world just happened, and what have we experienced. And that's what leads us in to Acts chapter 11. So we'll pick up right there with verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Now, I made a joke about circumcision last week, and uh, we're not going to go there again because it did not land. It didn't work. So instead, what you have to understand is that what's happening is that all of Peter's people the circumcision party all, it was, it was a party within the Jewish people, the Jewish of the Jewish. And they've heard that their boy Peter is hanging out with Gentiles and he's, he's offering them the gospel and he's offering them Jesus and the Holy Spirit's doing stuff and they get upset. Can I just say one thing just, uh, just off the bat here? Obedience will always cost you something. And for Peter, it cost him being misunderstood by his own people. So the next 10 verses of this passage is Peter literally walking through the entire story. We're not going to walk through it together, but he recaps the whole thing. I was in this place called Joppa. I was hungry. I was praying. I had a vision. and He unpacks the whole story. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. Peter has told the story, and then he ends with this. If then God gave the same gift to them, them being the Gentiles, as he gave to us, When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they, they being uh, the the circumcision party, the Jewish of the Jewish, says, uh, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this might seem like just a small story or a small sentence, but this right here in the beginning of Acts chapter 11 marks a move of God unprecedented. Peter's obedience, Cornelius' obedience, God works through it to usher in a new era of this early church. And finally, they're going to realize that when Jesus said that this gospel would be preached first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, he really meant it. He really meant that the gospel was to go forth to everyone. And we're sitting here today because people rallied around that mission and took the gospel to the uttermost parts of the well, that's a weird word, uh, uttermost parts of the earth. And for a lot of people in a lot of places of uh, of the earth, Salt Lake City, Utah, is the uttermost part of the earth. And we gather today around this reality that that the that the mission that Jesus ushered in is starting to take form. And it's starting to take place. Okay. I'm really excited for the next slide. Don't put it up there yet. This is like the big reveal for a lot of you. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen 
traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. We're in the Bible. I'm telling you, we're going to, honestly, we're going to spend the next few minutes, it's actually hopefully going to be really powerful. I think the Lord has something for us because I'll tell you this, when I'm going out, uh, you know, I'm in the city and I'm meeting people and they find out I'm a pastor, first off, a lot of them just run for the hills. They don't want to do any, have anything to, to, to do, but with those that will still talk to me, they're like, oh, what's the name of the church that you pastor? What church do you pastor? And, and they're expecting like Grace Church, Love Church, Jesus Church, Christian Church, first this, second that. And I'm like, uh, Antioch, a- Antioch, it's, it's, uh, it's actually, it's in the Bible, it's Antioch Community Church. And the look is like, y'all are weird, that's like, that's just not a thing, like I was expecting something a little more palatable. So we're going to unpack here, because the reality is, biblical uh, historians would agree that Antioch is one of, uh, depending on who you read, uh, the uh, second or third most important city in the New Testament. It has a pivotal role, and the DNA and the values of what happens in Antioch are are unbelievable. We're going to unpack that for a minute. But what just happened here is if this was a movie, we're, this, we're in the middle of a flashback. So we're like, Peter is explaining to all the Jews why he was hanging out with Gentiles. And they're like, oh, okay, we agree. We're on board. We're with you. And the next thing is, now those who were scattered because of the persecution. So this is referencing back to the end of chapter 7, when Stephen is martyred for his faith. He's dragged out by a mob and he's killed. And this is what the next verse in that, uh, that story says. If we go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, all except the apostles. So up until Acts chapter 7 or 8, Most of this story has been confined to the story of the church in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus said that you're going to get power of the Holy Spirit comes on you. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's fascinating to unpack this and see the strategy by which God sent the gospel throughout the early world. Let's keep reading now about, oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to take, I'm going to pause before we read again. I think to understand what's happening here fully, I want to I inform us all a little bit more about this city called Antioch. And I could have tried to memorize all this and impress you all and sound really smart, but instead I just printed it off and I'm going to read it to you. So let's learn a little bit about this ancient city where this story is going to unfold called Antioch. Can you bring me up my tea? I said no to water because I had tea and then... I didn't bring my tea up. I don't want Tally's tea. All right. Here we go. The ancient city of Antioch was originally founded as part of the Greek Empire. The city was actually built by a general of Alexander the Great. It, was located, it is located about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, built next to the Orontes River in what is now modern-day Turkey. And it was built just 16 miles from a major port on the Mediterranean Sea which made it an important city for traders and merchants. And the city was also located on a major road that linked the Roman Empire with India and Persia. 
Because Antioch was part of major trade routes both by uh, by sea and by land, the city grew quickly in population and influence. By the time we're catching this story in Acts 11, uh, in, in the middle of the first century A.D., Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire, ranking behind only Rome and Alexandria. The merchants of Antioch traded with people from all over the world, which is why Antioch was known as one of the great multicultural cities of its day. And it included a population of Romans, Greeks, Syrians, Jews, and more. Antioch was a wealthy city as many of its inhabitants benefited from the high level of commerce and trade. So there's a little history of Antioch. This isn't just a small town. This isn't just a weird place out in the middle of nowhere. This is the third largest city in the empire. And this is where refugees from Jerusalem on the run for their life have been forced to flee the persecution that was happening to them in Jerusalem. And we're going to unpack the rest of their story of what happened uh, in Antioch. Let's uh, pick it up in verse 20. There were some of them, some of these refugees, some of these on the run for their life, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. I'll pause right there. So this is back in time. Remember, we're, we're in a flashback right now. So the, God hasn't shaken his people yet. People are still in the mindset, and, and they're going throughout as they're, as they're fleeing Jerusalem. They're still in the mindset of, we're going to tell all the Jews about Jesus. But there was a couple, there was a couple that kind of caught the vision of the gospel and actually believed Jesus at his word. And they were actually speaking to Hellenists. Hellenists would, can mean a lot of different things in different places in, the, in Scripture. Here it's most likely meaning uh, Greek-speaking Gentiles. So some of the men said, hey, we're not only going to tell Jesus, tell, tell Jews about Jesus. There's a lot of Greeks here. We can speak Greek. We're going to tell them about Jesus. And in verse 21, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And and verse 22, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So just pause real quick. We'll see what's happening here. The mothership, the hub in Jerusalem. The the, the apostles had stayed behind. There's There's still the church existing under the persecution in Jerusalem. And they start getting reports that 300 miles north in a predominantly Gentile city, a major city of Roman influence, a church plant has started. And not only has it started, but it's growing. And and amazing things are happening. And um, with a little bit of skepticism, the church in Jerusalem is like, we got to see if this is legit. Again, this has never happened up to this point in human history. The church is in its infancy So the idea that in a predominantly uh, Gentile city, a group of refugees were able to start a church, and and so much is happening in that church that that Jerusalem is hearing stories of it, it was unthinkable. They didn't really think that, uh, whatever you think is happening there, we'll come and, and find out. So they pick Barnabas, And they say, go check out what's going on up there in Antioch. Verse 23, when he came, he being Barnabas, to Antioch and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them. He challenged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Okay, so so many great things are happening. This, this like, this, like, uh, 
the, the reporter from Jerusalem shows up and he's blown away. And he begins like, not only like, yeah, this is happening. He like steps up to the pulpit and is like, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to challenge you. This is amazing. And then he sends word to Jerusalem like, this is amazing. And it's so amazing that good old Barney is like, I got to go find Saul. Saul, who has yet at this point in, in his life, uh, we're about five chapters of Acts away from his name getting changed to Paul. This Saul that was the one that was approving of Stephen's execution, he's now had his moment with God. He's now converted. He is now, uh, uh, he is now Saul of Tarsus. He will become Paul. He'll become Paul, the, the guy that becomes the greatest church planner that the Bible had ever seen. He, one of the greatest evangelists, and he writes most of the New Testament. So at this point in history, somehow that Saul that had that conversion, that, that moment happen, has already spread word, like word spreading around of him and who he is and, and what the, the, the favor and the influence that God has put on his life. So Barnabas leaves Antioch. He's like, I got to go find Saul. Where do you find someone in the ancient world? Well, luckily, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. So Bar, uh, Barnabas is like, I'm going to go to Tarsus and look for Saul. And he finds him. And in verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus looking for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Two things are happening in that passage. The the great evangelist Paul is cutting his teeth on what it looks like to preach and teach to a diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural church. This is him like workshopping all the stuff he's about to go do in the next few chapters. And then, like, the term Christian comes to be out of this church in Antioch. And it's because there's so many different cultures represented in the city. And normally, you could just call them by their culture. And it would have been easy if every culture stayed true to their own people and just said, oh, you're a Roman uh, Christ follower. You're a part of that church and you're Roman or you're a Greek follower of Christ or you're a Syrian follower of Christ. But that's not what was happening. The the church was being filled by people from every culture and every ethnicity in this city, so much so that historians are like, they're pretty sure that this whole term Christian came to be because no one in the city knew what to call these people. Like we can't call them Roman, Greek, Syrian, Jewish what are they? They're like little Christ. They're like little Christ-like people. They're following that guy Christ that they love and they worship like they're Christians. The term Christian came to be at Antioch. And this isn't like a like pat yourself on the back. You go to a church after the name. where we're, we're, You can if you want. I'm not going to judge you. But what this is, like the importance of this message and this part of the story is that the, the DNA from day one of, of Antioch and, and as this gospel goes forth to the uttermost parts of the earth is supposed to reflect the diversity of the city. And I talked about it a little bit last week when we talked about we have to face our own biases about who we think would want to hear Jesus, who we think would want to hear the gospel, who we think would want to come to church. And chapter 10 is all about stop thinking you know who and, and who doesn't uh, deserve the gospel I've made it so that everyone deserves the gospel. And chapter 11 is like, and check it out. The church is supposed to represent that. It's supposed to represent the diversity of the city. The beautiful thing happening here is like Romans and Greeks and Syrians and Jews, they had a lot of reasons not to like each other. 
They had a lot of reasons to start their own little churches for the, the Roman church in Antioch and, and the Greek church and the Syrian church and the Jewish church. But for the first time in human history and the first, for the first time in the history of the church, they're like, hey, under the umbrella of Christ, we're in this together. And if we're going to be the full display of the glory of God, if we're going to fully to the, the rest of this city is going to know the glory of God through us, we've got to represent the city by which we, in, we, in which we live. This is a historical, like, like groundbreaking thing happening at this, in this city called Antioch. And as I read through this chapter for, for tonight, I just wanted to pause and say, I know that Antioch might be hard to say. I know it might be confusing to people to like, okay, what's, what is that? What, what is that Antioch word you just said? But may we, every time that you and I say the name of Antioch, help people pronounce it, help people spell it, would we be reminded of our DNA? The reason that we carried the name of Antioch wasn't because we were looking for a cool, different name to name a church movement. Is because when you look at this passage, we realize we want to be a part of that church. That diversity is in our DNA. And if we're not fully displaying the diversity of our city, we're going to fight for it. Today, I can tell you, we don't fully reflect the city. And that's not an accusation. That's not an indictment. That's a, hey, there's hope because there's more. There's more for us and there's more for this city. And every time that you say the name of Antioch, would you be reminded that the DNA, not only is it to be a DNA that we are a diverse people, but we are a gospel-centered church that plants churches. We are continuing that mission. If you, if you didn't know, we're a part of a network of churches all around the world that falls under this banner called Antioch. And there's, I don't know now, almost 40 churches, 36 churches in, in the U.S., and there's works in over 40 countries, and it's exciting, and it's awesome to be a part of a movement worldwide of extended family that are going after the same vision, the same values. But when we planted this church going on four years ago, the vision of Antioch has stayed the same. We want to be a diverse church that represents our city. We want to stay true to the gospel. We want to stay true to discipling people and what it looks to know and live and apply the gospel to their life. And we want to be a church that plants churches all around the world. Amen? So the next time you have trouble saying any, and I, and, and I make that joke a lot. People are like, why is it, like, people are looking at me like, stop making that point. A lot of y'all don't know how to say it. I'm just saying. I hear it a lot, and I'm like, oh, not quite, not quite there yet. So I'm really hammering that home yet. Antioch. Antioch. Okay. Let's wrap up chapter 11. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I think this little passage of Scripture is in there 
because it shows that this church, this Gentile church, where a lot of the Jewish believers all around Judea and Samaria and the uttermost were still struggling to come to terms with, okay, so you're telling me that Gentiles can receive the gospel. You're telling me that Jesus isn't just for the Jews. You're telling me that church isn't for, okay. And they're wrestling through as this passage shows us that this predominantly Gentile, ethnically, culturally diverse city or church in Antioch has been knit into the church so much so that they send Barnabas and they send Saul back to Jerusalem with like money and gifts to help the people in Judea that are about to go through a famine. It just shows that, that this church has been knit in to the big C church. It's not an outlier. And just in case you were wondering if this, this whole Gentile experiment was like over there for those weird Antioch people and they're like, they're, no, no, they're, they're like, they're in it with us. They're sending, they're, they're a part of the family, they're a part of the disciples, they're a part of everything. And that's how the story ends. The first 11 chapters ends with this new church in Antioch being knit in uh, to the Big C Church. And I want to focus on two things. One, I want to take us back to Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. There are a lot of different ways, a lot of strategies. If I'm honest, if I had been part of, if I had been allowed to be a part of some council meeting or some meeting of strategic leaders that are like, okay, we've got this church in Jerusalem. Stephen just got killed. People are freaking out. What do we do? I would not have said, you know what? This is how God is going to, God's going to use this to fulfill his promise that his gospel is going to go forth to the whole world. There's a lot of ways to church plant. Running for your life isn't ideal. And so as I look at that passage, and, <coughs> and we, we, we look at the reality that God used a group of people that were on the, uh, I mean, literally, like let's not paint it what it isn't. Like the, they were fleeing for their life, these are men, women, and children that were afraid to stay in Jerusalem because they have counted the cost and they looked at the dead body of Stephen and they said, following Jesus might cost us our life. And they had to wrestle with, is it worth it? And you know what? It doesn't say in Scripture, so I can't say this with any authority, but I get, my guess is probably some said no. Probably right there in that moment, I bet some were like, nope, I'm out. This was fun when we were singing worship, and we had Nolan leading, and we had, we had coffee or lemonade or something out there. This was fun when we had ministries, but now no, people are dying. I'm out. But those that remained and said, no, 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 we met Jesus. Remember, we go back to the, the arc of this story. We talked about the church being people that were devoted to each other and devoted to Jesus. We talked about the church being people that were just ordinary people who had met Jesus, and their whole lives were flipped upside down. People that were infected with this boldness that just couldn't help but tell people about this Jesus that they had encountered personally that had changed their life forever. It's these people that are now fleeing for their life. And somehow, in, in, in the, from the lens of heaven, God looks down and he says, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use heartache I'm going to use pain. I'm going to use confusion. I'm going to use people that don't know what's happening. Can you imagine waking up on the 300-mile journey from Jerusalem to Antioch? You don't know where you're going to end up. You're just trying to get away. 
how many days they must have woke up saying, is this worth it? We've got kids. Is this worth it? We have a future in Jerusalem. Is this worth it? We don't know. All of our people are behind us. We don't know where we're going or what we're doing. And day after day, that group of refugees just said, yeah, Jesus is worth it. Let's figure out what's next. The church, the gospel, the mission was propelled by a group of people that just kept falling forward into Jesus. They kept saying, in the midst of their pain and their confusion and their heartache, in the midst of their persecution, they kept saying yes to the one that they had met and become devoted to. And can you imagine what it was like for them when the church in Antioch explodes? As they've spent however long it took to journey from Jerusalem to Antioch, they show up in a town, massive, hustle and bustle everywhere, people they've never seen before, languages they've maybe never heard before. But what does this group of refugees do? They do the only thing they know how to do. How easy would it have been for them to show up and be like, you know what? We made it. We're safe. That was crazy. We did our crazy, risky thing for God. We just fled our home for 300 miles. Now we're going to get a job, get a white fence. We're going to settle on the outside of town, and we're going to live out the rest of our days. And we're going to hope that no one from Jerusalem comes looking for us. But instead, it says they showed up, and they're like, there's these guys that are like, cool, you speak my language. Can I tell you about Jesus? They were so devoted. They were so in love. This is the story of a group of people that were not acting out of religiousness. There was no apostle with them on this journey saying, now remember, when we get to Antioch, make sure here's the three codes to church planting. Take this class. Take this. What, like, these were refugees. That's why Jerusalem was so appalled when they heard. Like a group of who started what? I'm telling you, I think we could learn a lot from these refugees that planted the church at Antioch. And I want to challenge us tonight. Most of us will never be in a, in a situation in our life where we have to choose between following Jesus and our life. Persecution for most of us will never look like having to decide if we're going to risk our, our kids' lives for the sake of Jesus. So what, what does this mean for us today? Like, what does persecution look like for you and I today? I go back to, to Peter being misunderstood by his own people, showing back up after obeying God, seeing a move of God, seeing amazing things happen and having people not believe him. I think for a lot of us today, <coughs> persecution is going to come in a lot of forms. Are we willing to be misunderstood? Are we willing to have family and friends ridicule us for our faith? Now, I'm speaking from experience right here. I'm not projecting any of this on you. But we have to look ourselves and we have to look at this past. We have to look at the mission of the church and realize that things got really messy when Jesus and his mission became the number one priority for these group of people. And they left home, and they left the food they knew, and the people they knew, and the relatives they knew. But Jesus was worth it. And they didn't have all the answers. 
And they didn't know all the theological ways to go about arguing this, that, and the other. And we live in a society today in 2019 where every single one of us and every single person that has a phone or a computer is a philosopher and a theologian and everyone speaking truth and telling us how to believe and what to believe and how not to believe. And they're going to poke holes in everything you want to say you believe. And they're going to look at you and I and they're going to go, you're ignorant. You're stupid. How could you believe that? Are we willing in the face of a world and a society that wants to just poke holes in everything that we believe, that's our persecution. We might not have to choose between life and death. But every time you open up Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, every time you go home for the holidays, or every time you show up to a work party, or every time you have a one-on-one with your boss, you're showing up to an environment where your face put on the line. And I think back to this group of people. I think back to Peter who was willing to be misunderstood by his own people. I think back to Jesus, who was willing to be crucified by his own people. I think back to these refugees who planted Antioch. And they just did the only thing they knew how. They loved Jesus, and they told people about what they knew. Today, persecution is going to look like a lot of different things for us. My guess is for a lot of us, it's going to be If you don't have every answer to everyone's question, you're wrong. I sit up here before you like, I don't have every answer to every question. And that's persecution for me mentally a lot of the time. A lot of people don't think that I should be up here if I don't know every answer to every question. How can I follow God? How can I believe in Jesus? How, let, me, let me throw some questions out to you and just, and just tear down everything you believe from an intellectual standpoint. Or maybe you've got family and friends that have been burned by religion, been burned by church, and they can't stand that you go to church. They can't stand that you would follow Jesus. They can't stand that you would open up your Bible because there's wounds, real, legitimate, valid wounds. We look at Acts chapter 11, we have to ask ourselves, are we going to be willing to just keep falling forward and doing the only thing we know how to do? I'm sorry I can't answer every one of your questions. I'm sorry I can't heal every one of your wounds, but I know Jesus. Like, I know him. I met him. I love him. I follow him. I'm not doing this because my dad told me to. I'm not doing this because my friends. I'm not doing this to get a girlfriend. I'm not doing this to to get a job. I'm not doing this to to impress my in-laws. I met Jesus. That's the only way. That's the only way this thing is going to work. That's the only way the mission of the kingdom advances is when you and I know Jesus and tell people about him. I don't know if I hit on anyone's buttons there or, or pushed on any, any insecurities. Can, I, can we all just admit, can we all, are we willing to be a group of a couple hundred people willing to admit we don't have every answer? If you, if you think you have to have every answer to follow Jesus, I'd love to know how it goes for you. Following Jesus it's messy. It gets, it gets messy. But the mission of the gospel and the person of Jesus have to be worth it. 
if the mission isn't worth it, if Jesus isn't worth it for you individually, then church will be a thing that whenever it gets hard, you'll leave. And that's not an accusation. That's a, I get it. I would do the same thing. I feel like we all just need a little bit of ministry time. Let me end with this. There's hope. There's hope in the gospel, the gospel that says we're on even footing, that we're all broken, that we're all messed up, that none of us have all the answers. There's hope because you and I don't have to have the answers. We can point people to Jesus. That you and I don't have to have it all together. We can just come to Jesus. That you and I don't have to, 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 to pretty ourselves up and look good and look the part and be the part and act the part before we can enter into relationship with Jesus, which was what this is all about anyway. There's hope that for the kingdom advancing around the world. And can I just say, as someone that's privileged enough to get phone calls or sit in meetings that some of you guys don't get to sit in on, and I get to hear stories, can I just, just for a moment, like the kingdom's advancing. Like, like I'm not like I'm not here just blowing smoke. Like I'm, I'm I get I get phone calls or text messages or emails every week about what God's doing in a certain city or a certain nation. God's on the move, and if you think that we're blowing smoke when we say that the kingdom is advancing in Salt Lake, then come have coffee with me. Like. We get, that's not something we say to rally ourselves up, to get, it, to get ourselves up on stage and pump us up to be excited. It's like if the kingdom's not advancing, what are we doing? And what this thing, like the moment the kingdom starts advancing, it's like, well, something went wrong here. I believe that this is true. I believe that God is advancing his kingdom. I believe the gospel is the hope of the world. And when that stops, I'm like, Jesus better be on his way back or we're doing something wrong. I don't know what's happening here. The kingdom is advancing. And for all of you in this room that are like, I don't feel it advancing in my life. I get it. I get it. I I would say that those refugees probably didn't think the kingdom was advancing in their lives either. So what heartache, what pain, what question, what confusion does God want to move in you and through you to see a move of God happen that we've never seen before? Can you imagine if we could go and show up on that road and talk to those refugees and be like, you don't know it yet, but what you're doing is going to change the world. You don't know it yet. I mean, through your tears and your sweat and your confusion and your pain, you lost friends, you left family, people think you're crazy for following this Jesus guy. You don't know it yet, but God's using you and your pain to write a historic move of God in the world. And can you imagine if being ones of those, uh, those refugees that decided it was too hard or just said, you know what, I can't take the pain anymore. I, I have too many questions. I just, I got to get out. And then they, they hear and they see what God does at Antioch. I don't want to be one who misses out on the story that God wants to use me and my pain and my confusion and my questions to help write. I don't want to show up in 30 years and be like, I could have been a part of a move of God, but I let my pain keep me from it. Pain's real, guys. I'm not trying to minimize the hurts and the wounds and the questions. I'm just saying that if we model ourselves after these people, 
And I know I use this term a lot. Let's just keep, if we just keep falling forward into Jesus, we keep falling forward into community, we keep falling forward into submitting ourselves to the Scripture and to the Spirit and to each other and to the headship of Christ, we don't know what he might do with our questions and our pain. If you're in the room tonight and you don't know Jesus, then hearing about a group of people that would risk everything, whether it be back in the mid-first century, AD, or whether you're looking around this room and you're like, what are these people doing? The, the, the gospel says that you and I are on equal footing. We need Jesus. That he's the way, the truth, the life. That in him, in, 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 in giving him lordship of our life and surrendering our own right to make our own choices and just do whatever we want, whatever feels good. I don't know about you, but that didn't work for me. And it doesn't work for me. I find that when I'm the Lord of my own life, it doesn't go well. And when we surrender to the sacrifice and the grace and the love of Jesus, and we let him be Lord, and we, we have questions and we, we don't have it all together, but we just say, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to love you, and you chose me, I choose you. And we keep falling forward into more grace and more hope and more life. And more of those promises that we get to sing about. If you're here and you're new, you're here and you don't know Jesus, you just entered a room with a bunch of people that really need hope and really need life and really need grace. And that's why we're raising our hands because we found it in Jesus. And that's why we're, people are jumping and it might be weird. And that's why people are like listening to someone talk on a mic for 40 minutes. Like, this is weird. It's all because the hope we found in Jesus Scripture says all we have to do is call on his name. I'm going to go ahead and pray. The band wants to come up. Why doesn't everybody bow their heads with me? If you're in the room and you need Jesus for the first time, or maybe you're like, man, I just need to rededicate my life. Wherever you are on the journey, he's after your heart. I'm going to say a really simple prayer. And you can repeat it after me out loud. You can repeat it after me in your heart. You can make it your own words. He's after our heart. Jesus, you're worthy. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for choosing me. I don't, I don't have all the answers. But I choose you, Jesus. I can't do it on my own anymore. I choose to make you Lord. I accept your gift of salvation. And I say you are who you say you are. You are the way and the truth and the life. And I need help and I want help to follow that way. And I believe you did what you did. You, you hung on that cross and you beat sin and you beat death for me. You made a way for me to have life and to have hope. Jesus, I choose you. I don't really know why you would choose me, but I accept it. Come be Lord of my life. Amen.